Good morning. What an amazing section of scripture. Amen. So obviously from the, uh, the reading, you probably guessed that we're going to today look at the second chapter of Acts. Oh, not that second chapter of Acts, sorry. The, uh, the second chapter of the fifth book in the New Testament. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, today, we come before you and we ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears to hear from you. God, what, uh, what, what amazing miracles we saw just in listening to that reading. And we're asking that you would impart that vision more and more into our hearts. That we might, as you promised, walk in the things that, uh, that you have done. We're giving you permission today to work in us. Have your way here. Amen. Amen. All right, so before we get into the text, there's a foundational piece that I want to kind of look at that I think is, is kind of important. Um, so let me start with this. It's not unusual for words to become so associated with a thing that the word begins to uh, be that thing, if you will. So for example, Xerox. Um, you know, that was the original copy machine, and so a lot of people will say, hey, let's, let's make a Xerox of this, or let's go use the Xerox machine, regardless of what brand it is. Or Jell-O. Doesn't matter what brand of gelatin you happen to be using, you're probably calling it Jell-O, right? It just, it, it becomes the thing. And, and I think a similar thing has happened with the word Pentecost, that term. As Christians, especially as Christians who, you know, 2,000 years after the fact, um, we see Pentecost as the day that Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And that's true. That is not at all a wrong understanding. But to the original people back then, they would have understood the backstory, if you will. Jews to Jews, Pentecost is the 50th day after Passover. The term Pentecost is actually comes from the Greek word for 50. In other words, 50 days after the beginning of Passover. Um, and just a little historic background, it also happens to be the same as the, um, the Feast of Weeks. Uh, that was because God commanded the Jews in Leviticus 23, Leviticus, little tip of the hat there, um, to, uh, to, in, um, to, to count seven weeks, 49 days, after the second day of Passover and celebrate this, uh, offer grain offerings to the Lord. So Pentecost and the Feast of Weeks are the same thing. You with me so far? But we need to understand the significance um, behind those. They were, both of those things were based in the bigger story, the, the, the story of God's rescue. You know, um, the, the whole story of God coming into Egypt and rescuing his people, the plagues, the, the parting of the Red Sea, They've been in, in, in captivity for 400 years, now they're free. So all of that is all about Passover, right? And then 50 days after Passover, they come to Sinai where God gave Moses the law. So if you remember what I said several weeks ago when I talked about, the, about Pentecost and the temple, um, God, in giving them the law, what he's doing is he's giving them instructions on how they need to live in God's presence in order to behave rightly in the presence of God. Here's what you need to do. So if we understand all of that, then the connection here with Acts 2 and Pentecost, what happens, I think is amazing. I mean, think about it. 
on this anniversary day of the giving of the law, God is, is pouring out his spirit that allows them to be able to actually fulfill the law, to actually live into what he wanted them to do. First part of Romans 8, Paul says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The, the law couldn't actually make us holy and righteous because on our own, we're too weak. We can't do it. Just a half a verse further down, it says this, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because of the Holy Spirit, we now have the ability to actually fulfill the law. Um, Paul talked, uh, uh, talking to the Jews in Antioch in Acts 13. He says, By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The Spirit of God gives us the ability to actually do what God wants us to do, to fulfill the law. So think of it this way. Um, you don't have to be a Trekkie to know who uh, Captain James T. Kirk is, right? Uh, everybody knows who's that. Who, knows who that is. Um, when he was a cadet studying to be a commander, uh, he had to take a test. You guys probably know this background. The test was unpassable. The computer was set up to make sure that everybody failed. You could not pass the test. And the idea was it gave you all kinds of scenarios all at the same time to test what you would do under all of this pressure. But you couldn't pass it. it was gonna, you're going to fail. But they just want to see how you would respond. Well, Kirk had already failed it twice. And I know this is a fictional story, but bear with me, all right? Um, and so he's going to take it again. And James T. Kirk doesn't believe in uh, the, the idea of something that's impossible. And so he reprograms the computer. He gets in, reprograms the computer. But he makes it not so that he will pass the test, but so that he can pass the test. So it's no longer unpassable. Are you with me? See, I think that's exactly what Holy Spirit did for us. He reprogrammed our computers so that we can now pass the test. doesn't mean we're always going to. doesn't mean we have to. You and I both know we still have sin that's inside of us. We, we, we have a rebellious streak, if you will. But we now have the ability to fulfill the law. That's what Holy Spirit has done for us. And so think about it. Here we are on this day of celebration of the law being given and the Holy Spirit is being poured out so that we can fulfill the law. Do you, do you guys think that was a coincidence? Was that an accident? No, I think that was pretty deliberate on God's part. It's almost like he knew what he was doing or something. I don't know. Yes, he does. All right, let's jump into the text. And again, I want to remind you before we jump into the text here that, that as we go through the book of Acts, we are not going to hit every verse. You just heard every verse. That was great. Love that. Um, the public reading of Scripture is one of the things that we're told to do in, New in the New Testament, all right? Um, but we can't, if we hit every single verse all the way through in these, these sermons, we're going to be here for a really, really, really long time. So we're going to hit some highlights. First verse, um, I will go kind of verse by verse here at the beginning, but then we'll kind of hit some highlights. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. I talked about that, that phrasing uh, several weeks ago when I talked about Pentecost in the temple and how it seems like God is emphasizing that they're all together in one place. Uh, it, it, it's almost like, like God pours out his blessing on people that are dwelling together in unity or something. I don't know. It's, it's possible. It's and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Again, you guys know that I'm, I'm crazy about words and I find it interesting that this isn't just a 
the sound of a wind. It's not even the sound of a rushing wind. It's the sound of a mighty rushing wind. We don't have a lot of wind around here. We, I spent a lot of my growing up years in Wisconsin where there's a lot of wind, um, but here there's not, all right? Uh, but if you've ever been in, in someplace where there was a tornado, you've heard power. So, so think about that. If they're in this building and they hear this mighty, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, I got to think that might be frightening, at least a little unnerving. And, and it's, not, it's not outside. It's, what, what does it say? It says it filled the entire house. So if you're all together in this room with a bunch of people and you hear this loud sound, I don't know, I got to think that's a little unnerving, but I, I also find the, the source of it interesting. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound. Came from he- I've said this before, and I'm going to keep on saying it, that heaven is not so much a place as it is a realm. And so it's the, it's the spiritual realm. And so this, this sound comes from the, the spiritual realm, but it invades the physical realm. A mighty rushing wind. Wow. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I'd also talked about this idea a few weeks ago when I talked about Pentecost in the temple, and the, the, the wording here gives us the impression that, I don't know, like this, this giant ball or I don't know, glob of fire, whatever, glob of fire comes down and then divides, separates out and goes to each different person. And clearly, this is a, a reenactment, if you will, of the original dedication of the original temple, Solomon's temple, where the fire came down, God's glory filled the place. But here, it's not filling a, a physical building, it's filling the new temple, the church, God's people, you and me. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Let me say that there's a, a little bit of, of uncertainty about the wording here um, and that word that's translated in the ESV as dwelling. In other places, it's translated as staying, which actually to me makes a whole lot more sense in the context that we're talking about. Um, I mean, think about it. What, what, what's going on here. There's this big festival. All of the, these people are there for this big event, Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. So, so there are people who are visiting Jerusalem from all of these various places um, for this huge annual festival. And, and that, so, so if you say staying, it makes a lot more sense in this context. People from all these lands are there in Acts 2, right? And what happened? At, and at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them hearing them speak in his own language. I remember Pastor Nick years ago talking about how this sounds like it could be every bit as much a miracle of the ears of the hearers as it is the mouths of the speakers, that they're all hearing, everybody is hearing their own language from everybody. Now, it could be that, but I'm a little skeptical about that idea, mostly because I have traveled a lot and worked with different translators as I've talked, and there have been times where I've said something, and they're just going on and on and on, and I'm like, did I really say that much? Um, and, you know, just practically speaking, um, I've been told that Hungarian, that the average word in Hungarian is two to three times as long as the average word in English. So just, there's differences in language. 
And then along with that, there have been the other times where I've said something where I think it's going to take him you know, a little bit to translate, and he says like four words, and, and he's looking at me for the neck, and that's when I've decided to take a drink of water, and I'm <laughs> oh, okay, we're ready to go. Um, so there's just differences in language, and so I'm a little skeptical as to whether everybody's hearing the same thing. I think, all right, I'm, I'll be honest, it is possible, all right, God can do anything, okay? So it could be that. I think the more likely scenario is that there's somebody near them that they're hearing actually speaking in their own language. But either of those two scenarios is probably a moot point. Either way, God is getting his message across, right? That's what's going on here, and pretty clearly. Verse, verse 11 reiterates the idea. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We're going to talk about that mighty works of God in a minute, but we need to recognize what Luke is saying here. The, the, the list of people is from all over the known world. Can you give me that, that next slide? Maybe, there it is. So, this, so Jerusalem, that, that little blue thing down there in the middle, and then all of these different places, people all over the known world. And, and a lot of commentators say this may not necessarily be an exhaustive list of everybody that was there. This might just be some highlights. But you can see they're from everywhere, in the known world at that time, okay? So this is probably not so much as a, a complete list as it's just like just a, you know, a quick snapshot kind of thing. And yes, these are, are, are Jews um, or Jewish proselytes, but they're going back to where they came from and they're going to be able to share the message that they heard that, that day. They heard about the mighty works of God. Now, exactly what that means, I don't know, but I would speculate that they were, as these people were speaking, they were hearing about the things that Jesus did and said. I mean, that would make, make sense in the context of Peter's message because Peter says um, that uh, as, as he's talking, he, he is, I think he's kind of assuming, if you will, what uh, they know about Jesus. He doesn't tell them a lot of different things about him. He just assumes some knowledge on their part, so they must already know uh, in verse 22, he actually said that, um, that they know, that you know that, that Jesus did mighty works, wonders, and signs. And so if they know that, they had to find that out somehow, I think maybe as they're hearing the mighty works of God, that might be what's going on here in this section of Scripture. Don't know for sure, but it makes sense. But I want you to think about the, the bigger implication of this scene. Um, See, if you think back to Genesis, God promised Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, think about that. How is that going to happen? Think about the Tower of Babel and God separated everybody with all these different languages. They were no longer together. They couldn't understand one another. How on earth is everybody going to be blessed through this one family? Well, it seems to me that what's implied here in Acts 2 is that that promise is being fulfilled. The whole human race will get to hear. People from every tribe and family and nation will be blessed. See, since God is now empowering his people, there are no longer any limitations. None at all. Think about that. That's you and me. We have no limitations because we have Holy Spirit working through us. All right, so now we're finally at the place where, where Peter launches into his, his uh, message, what many people have called his great Pentecost sermon. And as I, as I read this, 
you guys have heard me do this before. I kind of put myself into, all right, I'm thinking if I'm Peter, you know, how am I, what am I doing here? These people are saying that me and my friends are drunk. I'm not sure if this is me. I'm not sure that my first response is to start quoting the Bible. I'm just being honest with you. But let me give you some, some backstory here to help us understand. First century Jews had read the scriptures and they were looking for, for something to change in their generation. The book of Daniel has a prophecy where it talks about how the people of, of God are going to be in exile for 490 years. And that begins with the Babylonian exile. So depending on how you measure it, how you look at it, and apparently there were a number of different ways to look at it, all right? But depending on how you look at it, they are now someplace between the 400 and 500 year mark from that. And so they're expecting that God's going to do something new. He's going to take them to a new place, whether that's spiritually or physically, something's going on. And they, there were signs that they expected to see as a result of that ancient prophecy, and they were looking for those signs. They knew they were right on the verge of something big going on. And so when Peter starts talking about the last days and that God is pouring out his spirit and that there's going to be signs and wonders, you know, he clearly had their attention at that point. This is what they were waiting for. This is what they had been, been anticipating, if you will. And so when Peter starts starts talking, he's not just offering an explanation about their weird behavior. No, he's saying, we're here, guys. Like when, when we would travel in our, with our kids when we were, they were little and, and we kept hearing, are we there yet? Yeah, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah. And that's what Peter, Peter's going, we're here. We arrived, guys. This is it. This is, this is what you've been waiting for, the whole new starting point. Everything from this point forward is changing. Peter refers to that time as the last days. Don't confuse that with the the day of the Lord that he talks about in verse 20, all right? From Peter's perspective, they are now in, and I would say that we are now in, the time between when the Spirit is poured out and that final day. We're in the last days, the end times, the, the time prior to the very end. And you have to know that when Peter used that kind of language, he had their attention big time. I find the the statement in verse 17 kind of interesting. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, we could read that from our Western black and white way of thinking and and say, wait a minute, all flesh? The spirit's not being poured out on the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He's not being poured out on the Roman soldiers. He's not being poured out on the the rabbinic schools there. This seems like a pretty small group, pretty exclusive group to to claim it's all flesh, right? But see, it was all flesh because there's no longer any distinction between slave and free, male and female, young or old. Truly is all flesh. Receiving Holy Spirit's power as one writer put it, is wonderfully inclusive. I love that phrase. But there's only one path. There's only one way. There's only one truth. It's all through Jesus. Yes, it is all flesh, but you have to be a follower of his. Any person on the planet, regardless of their, I don't know, their station, their ethnicity, their, their education, their background, whatever, anybody is eligible to receive 
the power of the Holy Spirit as long as you're a follower of Jesus. So Peter explains that the the phenomenon they're witnessing isn't a bunch of drunk guys. No, this is Holy Spirit being poured out in the last days. And then, you know, as, as you're... As you're going along, we might not notice it, but I think in what, what's being said, Peter takes like this, this sharp turn. Now, we've read it a zillion times, and so for us, it doesn't really seem all that, that odd, but he, he totally changes the topic, the subject of what he's talking about. Um, the reason this is the last days, he says, the reason for the, the Spirit being poured out is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm sure, you know, for the people there, it's like, wait, what? Not only that, but then Peter brings into the conversation what would be, what, what we would call probably the second or third most noted name in the history of Israel, David, arguably the best king in Israel's history, certainly the, the, the most renowned one. If there's a conversation going on in a Jewish household about kings or about their history in in general, guess whose name is going to probably come up? It's going to be David. And Peter uses some of David's own words as well as a little explanation of background there that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. That's got to be a little bit weird for the people there. And I let me point out here that that, um, this is something harking back to what I said last week. Luke is very thorough about having, under, having us understand as readers that the resurrection is primary. He, he keeps bringing it up again and again. It's not, it's not some disembodied spirit coming up. No, this is, this is a physical being who has not decayed, who is coming out of the grave. Um, and so uh, Luke is making sure he's bringing it up here again because it's so important. And then Peter goes on to quote David about that not decaying in the grave thing for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption the word corruption there can be a little bit tricky for us it's again one of those word for word translation things that I mentioned last week Uh, the NIV says you will not let your holy one see decay Uh, the new century version says you will not let your holy one rot Um, that's uh, that's pretty clear right Peter says that David was clearly not talking about himself. The only way that you can, um, he, 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 he was buried and he rotted, he decayed, okay? The only way that you can really look at this um, and understand it rightly is with the idea that, that, that David is speaking prophetically. He's talking about somebody coming after him, if you will. Um, somebody in David's lineage that is gonna come along and they're actually going to, uh, to, to fulfill that staying in, uh, not staying in the grave, that, that coming out and not decaying. And that did happen. Jesus, the Messiah. And then in verse 33, Peter ties those two big ideas, the idea that um, um, that, that these amazing events that you're seeing here on the day of Pentecost and and Jesus' death and resurrection, he's not going to see decay. He ties those things together, being therefore, verses 33 and 34, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, so Peter is pointing out that the, 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 the crazy things that they're seeing there on the day of Pentecost, that these are simply signposts. They're pointing to something else. This isn't the, the event itself. This is pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. That's the big deal here, guys. That's what, what we need to see. 
So look back at, at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then verse 36, drop down there. Um, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I like the way N.T. Wright um, talks about this. He says this, God's plan of salvation was always intended to reach its climax with Israel's Messiah undertaking the ultimate rescuing task. The anointed king would come to the place where evil was reaching its height, where the greatest human systems would reveal their greatest corruption. Rome, with its much vaunted vaunted system of justice, revealing itself rotten at the core. Israel, with its celebrated temple and hierarchy, revealing itself hollow at its heart. And where this accumulated evil would blow itself out in one great act of unwarranted violence against the person who, of all, had done nothing to deserve it. That, the early Christians believed, was what God had always intended. Wow, that's powerful. And it was God's plan all along, the the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's what had to happen because we're such a mess. And then as we we head into the, the end of Peter's message, there's some things that we need to understand. Jesus throughout his visible earthly ministry. And then Peter here again in his his sermon here, um, they both repeatedly told the Jewish people that they are on this path of of heading to the brink of destruction. Um, Over and over, Jesus said it, and then Peter here, he's warning the Israelites they're on this path, and if they keep going down the same path, it's not going to end well. Verses 37 to 39. Now, when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repent, turn around, get off that path of destruction. That's what Peter's telling them. And be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter says, if you do those things, then you too are going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just like we did, all right? And understand that salvation here to the the first century Jews was not so much about eternal salvation. Oh, don't misunderstand, that's included, all right? But it was less about that, and it was more about being saved from the corruption of the world Makes sense if you read verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So with Christ living inside us, Holy Spirit leading and guiding us, we can be saved from the corruption of this world. You with me? Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And again, I would say that the 3,000 souls are not all inhabitants of Jerusalem. These are people that have come um, from all of these other places that were mentioned earlier. And they, they took that message back with them. I, I think it's, it's fair to say that, that all of those people being in Jerusalem that day, on the day that the Holy Spirit is being poured out, I don't think that was an accident. I think God set that whole thing up and it was, I think it was God's way of, if I can say it this way, priming the pump. Think about it. All of those people took that message back to wherever it was that they came from. Now, probably they didn't remember word for word everything that Peter said, but they would remember enough of it that they could share with other people 
And so when Paul or others came with the message of the gospel, there was already a seed that had been planted in all of those different places. Which I think is fascinating. All right. Um, then we get to the, 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 the last section of this chapter. And when we're done with this, I'm hoping that you're all still going to like me. Um, you guys know that I have never shied away from controversy, right? So we're, we're good here. Um, Acts, 40, Acts 2, 42 and 43, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I love this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That could be communion. It could be just meals together uh, and prayer. That's pretty solid ground. And if you notice, that's the things that we as leaders have been emphasizing for quite a number of years now that are the most important things. Biblical teaching, fellowship with one another, hanging out with one another, and prayer. Those are, those are important. Not, and that, not just for our congregation. These are, these are priorities for Christians in general, should be priorities. And then the signs and wonders being done by the apostles. That's just a, a manifestation of what Jesus had promised. These things that you're going to do and greater things. And then the next part. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Let me say right off the bat that there are some people who over the years have used this section of scripture as a proof text that um, socialism and communism are biblical. With all due respect to people who say that and without trying to be too strong, that's hogwash. The, the, whole, the whole idea, um, socialism and communism are forced, they are coerced, they have to be enforced in order to actually work. It's a top-down mentality. You can see here that this is being done not because people were coercing them, but because they loved one another, they cared for each other. That's the motivation. There's no coercion that is suggested or implied. Um, if you go over to, to Acts 4 or 5, you're going to see later in, in this study that, that Peter actually tells the people that they don't have to do this. It's not required. No one was forcing them. In fact, there is, no, there is no condemnation of owning private property in the Scriptures. Um, we're going to see later on, we're going to see Peter tell Ananias and Sapphira that they had been welcomed to keep what they had. They didn't have to give it. It was okay if they wanted to keep it. So there was no coercion. So the people there in, in this section, um, the very next talk, verse talks about their generous hearts. They were being generous. They were being generous with one another. They were wanting to help. And even though that's a good thing, sometimes if you take a good thing too far, it becomes not a good thing. I'm going to give you a different perspective on this section than perhaps you've ever heard before. And there's a principle, I think we've heard this before here, but I just want to make sure. Some, sometimes when we read stories in Scripture, sometimes the stories are descriptive, they are not prescriptive. In, in other words, they're describing what happened, but it's not necessarily a pattern that we're supposed to follow for all time. Does that make sense? Okay. And I think um, that... There's, there's, there are some good stories that we need to follow, okay? But there are some that we probably shouldn't, and I think this is one of those not-so-good ones. Personally, and hang, hang on, give me, give me some time. Um, 
I, I think Jesus' followers there, having all things in common, this, is the, this and, and chapter 4 are the only places that that's talked about, okay? That they sold everything, got, got rid of everything that they owned. That's the only places that this is talked about. So if this is supposed to be an ongoing pattern for God's people, I got to think that maybe Jesus might have talked about it, or at least that Paul would have written about it. But there is nothing that suggests that any place in the New Testament. So I think it was a great motivation. They, they were doing it because they cared for each other. I think it was a great motivation. I think it was a bad implementation. Second, I mentioned earlier, the Bible does not condemn owning private property. In fact, if you think about it, there are laws that talk about uh, not stealing and if you understand the idea of not stealing somebody else's property, then the implication there is that owning something is good. It's to be honored. It's legitimate, all right, that you, you don't have to not have things. On top of that, the Bible uh, does not speak against using money to start businesses or create wealth or employ people. All of those things are spoken of in Scripture in a positive way. Well, except for the instances where those things are used to abuse people or to coerce people into doing something they don't want to do, all right? Um, those sorts of things are condemned. But not the money. Loving money is bad. Money itself is not. Think about the, the disciples in, in um, Antioch. Scripture says that they, from Acts 11, they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. In order to have the ability to give, they had to have possessions. They had to own stuff. This is many chapters later, all right? In fact, um, Luke chapter 8, verse 3, always been a, a fascinating scripture to me. Um, the wife of Herod's household manager gave money to Jesus' ministry. I'm guessing that Herod's household manager made a pretty good living. His wife took some of it and gave it to Jesus' ministry, and Jesus didn't turn it down. Apparently, that was all right. Along with that, the Bible gives us lots of principles about stewarding money and what to do with, with the things that we've been entrusted with. So all of that together, I'm not entirely sure that giving everything away, especially if that will work to your detriment, is a good thing or a godly thing. Now, okay, so how did this work to their detriment? Well, think about it, guys. Three times in Paul's letters, three different times, he is asking the various churches to give money to the church in Jerusalem. They needed help. They needed money. Now, that could just be coincidental. I totally understand that. But it might be that they didn't handle well the finances that they had been given, that had been entrusted to them. It could be that they gave it away and relied on other people to give them more. And if that's true, you know, today what we call that is a Ponzi scheme I'm just being honest. And again, I'm not saying that that's what happened. I just want to give us a different perspective on this. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't be generous. I think we should be generous. I think we should be super generous. I think there are times we should be sacrificially generous. All right? But for everybody to give everything away doesn't seem to follow what the heart of Scripture is all the way through. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, didn't Jesus tell the rich young ruler to give everything away? Yeah, he did, actually. But he didn't tell everybody to do it. 
Jesus always went right to the heart of the person. He would tell this guy to do something. He would tell this guy over here to do something totally different. Are you with me? So for everybody to give everything away. See, there are people who have a knack for making money. I think it's a God-given gift. We need those people in the church. There are people who have a, a, a knack for, for finding the best buy for the buck, if you will. We need those people in the church. Those are good things. So for everybody to give everything away, I'm just not sure that's the, the best, God's best, let me put it that way. And let, let, me, let, me, let me give you just a, a little bit more. What I'm doing here is I'm giving you a general principle. Jesus always went to the heart. It's possible there is somebody here that God's saying, you need to give everything away. I don't know. I can't make that determination. That's between you and him. Nobody else can make that determination for you. Are you with me? So we can't just take that scripture and say, oh, that's what we should do. I'm not entirely sure that's what it's saying. All right, then the last couple of verses. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and gener- glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I just uh, you know, try to imagine this scene. Hanging out with one another. That, that family atmosphere. I think God, no, I know God likes that. That's his heart. Being grateful for their blessings, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. I have more and more just in in recent days just been thanking God for the amazing ways that he blesses, even just the tiny ways that he does. I'm not even talking about big things. There's so many things that we, I think, kind of bypass, kind of ignore, being grateful for those things, being generous, genuinely caring for people. I think that is so important. This is not undoing what I just said. We should, I said before, we should be generous. We should be sacrificially generous. We should be helping one another. Praising God. They were doing that right there in the midst. But of course they were because he's the center. He's the source of everything. Praising God, having favor with the people. Jesus said that people were gonna, they would see our good works. They should see that we are different, if you will. All of these things are amazing. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. And I, I, this one here, I'm just going to say again, I think this is, is at, least, at least partially descriptive. Um, and I see this whole, this whole Pentecost day as kind of like, do you remember the scene from the magician's nephew in the, um, the Chronicles of Narnia, where Narnia is just starting out, and everything is so fertile that anything will grow. Remember they, they, the, the crossbar from the, the lamppost in London got thrown, landed, and a lamppost grew? I mean, that's, that's insane, right? But that's, that's the picture that I see here in Acts 2. This is so, there is so much life, it is so fertile, there is so much excitement going on that anything can happen. And I'm not saying it shouldn't happen today, don't get me wrong, but think about this. Luke wrote this years after the fact. If this was a standard practice, if day by day people were being saved all the time, this wouldn't be newsworthy here. But he doesn't say that again later. He does say it here. I think this is a big deal. And I think there are times and places where God does pour out his spirit and things happen like this. I think that's amazing. But to say that it's going to happen all the time... I just, that's not what scripture says. So I can't 
I can't go there. Does that make sense? All right. I'm going to leave you with just a, a few takeaways that, that I think are important. There may be other things in here that you think are more important than some of these. Great. Go with it. Run with it. But I'm just going to give you a few. First one. The idea of them being all together in one place when the Spirit is poured out, um, that's just striking to me. Uh, I, I won't say that it, it couldn't have happened if that wasn't there, if that, that component was not in place, but I think it's more likely that, that God caused their hearts to, to be knit together, even before the Spirit, so that they were at the right place when the Spirit was poured out. I think this is such a, a big deal. When, again, when, when brothers dwell in unity, that's where God commands his blessing. I think there's something special about that. And I don't ever want to take, and I don't want us together to take that idea for granted. Jesus, Jesus prayed that we would be one. I think this is so much more important than what we think it is. And so I want to emphasize that. And it's, it's, I, I think it's interesting that it's at the beginning and the end of this chapter, both places, talking about that, that oneness of heart, if you will. All right, second thing. We heard last week in chapter one about Jesus telling his followers that um, they were to go to their immediate context and then they were going to these, these further out places, right? And then in chapter two, we actually see that beginning to happen because there's all these people right there and then they get to go back and take it to those other places out there. I think of the, the, the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 that talks about us being co-laborers or fellow workers with God. It's not just our work. It's not just his work. It's a team effort. I like the way Daryl says it. He says, I supply the weakness. He supplies the strength. There's a lot, lot of truth in that statement. But he works through us. See, when we take a step in the right direction of doing what he wants us to do, he empowers us to do the things that he calls us to do. And that's what we see here in, in Acts 2. We're seeing that, that yeah, the, the disciples are doing what they were supposed to do. They were praying, and then what happens? The Holy Spirit gets poured out, and then Peter starts preaching, and all these people get saved. It's both and. It's people working and God working together, co-laborers, fellow uh, workers together. We need to understand that, that when we take the step to step out, that God is going to empower us to do the things that he wants us to do. So I'm telling you today, don't be afraid to step out. God's with you. He's going to give you what you need. And then the third takeaway that I want us to see, the priorities, I think, of these early believers should be our, our priorities too. Biblical teaching, Fellowship and meals with one another, doing life together, if you will. Prayer, that doesn't, that doesn't exclude being his witnesses. As a matter of fact, I think these things cause us to be a, a, a better witness when people see us um, following the teachings of Jesus, when we're, we're loving one another. Jesus said people are gonna know that we're, we're his disciples. How? Because we love one another. They need to see that. Um, we're, we're praying as he demonstrated and taught all of those things are going to make us better witnesses. So living those, those, those things right there, I think that's part of the, should be part of the, the normal Christian life. All right, let's pray. Father, today, 
as we have heard your word, God, I know for sure for me, I was pierced in so many ways putting this together. God, I, I too often have not seen us walking together in unity as the priority that clearly you do, uh, that, that our hearts are not fully knit together and that isn't such a big deal to me, but Lord, from your perspective, it clearly is. And so we're, we're inviting you here today to work in us more and more. God, cause us, even as you prayed, Jesus, to be one as you and the Father are one. May we be united. May we be so much together, so much a, a heartbeat of one another that, that your life is being lived in a practical and tangible way through us and that the world will see that. God, may we, may we also recognize that we are indeed your co-labors. You haven't just told us to do something and then sent us out on our own. You have, have empowered us by Holy Spirit to do the things that you want us to do. And so, Lord, give us the, the unction to, to step out and do the things that you've called us to do, knowing, confidently knowing that you are actually empowering us to do those things, to walk out the things that you've called us to. And Lord, we also ask that your priorities would be our priorities, that, we, that we're following your word, that we're, we're unifying, we're fellowshipping with one another, doing life together, that we're praying even as you taught and demonstrated. Lord, may those priorities be priorities for us. God, we, we know that we can't do any of these things on our own, but we also know that you empower us. And so we're asking today, Holy Spirit, work in and through us that we might fully be your witnesses. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.